Well, let's bow before the everlasting God. Lord God, we come before you with humble hearts today. Humble. Hmm. We'll hear about that today, what it truly means, what it truly means to be powered by your spirit. And Lord, help us that we would be humble servants today, powered by your spirit, ready to hear your word, ready to obey and do what it says. Uh, Not be hearers only, but doers. Lord, we pray uh, that you would just empower us to understand everything you have us to, to, for us to understand this morning so that we can, our lives can be transformed more to the, into the likeness of Jesus. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Go ahead and be seated. You know, you don't have to say go ahead and be seated in the Baptist church if you say what? Amen. amen. Right. You say amen, people just fall. Um, anyway. If you if you would fill out one of these uh, connection cards, we would really appreciate it. Uh, there's an opportunity to put prayer requests on there, opportunity to ask questions about what does it mean to you know be a member of the church, baptism, uh, relationship with Christ, all those type of things. And if you're the uh, first or second time uh, with us, we would love to know who you are uh, so that we could pray for you, minister to you in any way that we could. And so please fill that out and put that in the offering plate uh, at the end of the service on on, on the way out. Uh, the video that you saw to begin the service uh, was a clothing ministry video, and it was a new new location of, of our clothing ministry and, and the, the team um, uh, dedicating that, that place on, I think that was a video of, of the dedication day. And um, one of the things in connection with the clothing ministry, as we try to minister to families, we're going to minister to 30 families. Many of them will are from the clothing ministry at a day called Giving Christmas. And so please look that up in your church bulletin. I believe it's on the inside of the cover, bottom right side there. You'll see everything you need to know about Giving Christmas. We definitely need you to be a part of that. Is it a very, very important ministry? And so please, please be a part of that. All right. Well, the service is going to be a little bit different. As I prayed, uh, I said, Lord, help us to hear your word and then do your word. And that's exactly our plan today. Uh, Philip's going to come up a little bit early. And, and once he uh, explains God's word to us, we're going to try to do exactly what it just said. Amen? Uh, what a novel idea. And, uh, but so let's, uh, let's stand one more time and sing this song, this really a prayer song to the Lord. Lord, what a beautiful name. You were the word in the beginning, one with God the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in you are Christ. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Sin was great, your love. 
before the Lord and contemplate his beautiful name before we hear the preaching of the word today. Take your copy of God's Word and let's look together in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 14. The Word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you pray? Jesus said at one point, teaching the model prayer, when you pray, what is the Lord Jesus Christ believing. He's assuming that we're going to pray. So my question today is, do you pray? Let that sink in. And then my second question would be, what do you pray for? I think that's vitally important. I believe that prayer reflects the priorities of our hearts. With that being said, some praying reveals very self-centered, selfish, and carnal hearts. Other praying reveals a superficial, superficial and shallow heart, yet other praying has much of God in it, and it reflects a God-centered, God-saturated heart 
that is set upon spiritual priorities. When you pray, what do you pray for? Well, this prayer before us today is about praying with an extreme high view of God. If we exclude or fail to include certain things in our praying, then we're not necessarily concerned about those things if we exclude them, are we? If we leave those things out. So prayer expresses the desires of our hearts. So in this passage, I want to remind you, this is an inspired prayer. It's not that Paul is praying an inspiring prayer. The prayer is inspired. It is the word of the living God. So this prayer is inspired. Okay? He is praying to the believers in Ephesus. Corresponding to this, you can go over to Acts chapter 20 and you can read how Paul actually ministered to the elders of this particular church, which is enlightening. It's so good to see this. But he's praying for them. But practically, he's also praying for you if you're a believer. He's praying for all believers in this passage. So here's the content, basically. He is praying that Christians would experience and know the very power of God, the love of Christ, and the truth of God. The prayer is also a pattern to teach us how to pray. There's no better way to grow in prayer than to pray the text recorded in the Word of God. Right? We pray what the Bible has to say to us. So I'm encouraging you to be gripped with this particular God-saturated reality or realities that are found in this particular prayer. We need to lay hold of these spiritual realities and be gripped by them. So the goal would be that our own prayer lives, even mine, right, would be transformed into a more God-centered, Christ-centered or exalted, biblically-based prayer life. This is what we need. This is what prayer should look like in view of the greatness of God and our human need. This is what prayer should look like. So, it's not only a powerful prayer. The title is a reverent and submissive prayer subtitled Praying to Our Powerful and Loving Heavenly Father. But it's not only a powerful prayer, it's also a transitional piece within the book of Ephesians. Why? Because the first three chapters are loaded with indicatives. What is an indicative? Well, there are, there are moods of verbs that express statements of fact. That's what an indicative is. We're given fact after fact after fact concerning who Christ is in this book and therefore who you are in Christ because you're saved. They're indicatives that's given one after another. It's loaded for three in entire chapters. But when you get to chapter 4, the indicatives turn over to practical application in life. In other words, you need to be orthodox in what you believe, chapters 1 through 3, and then you need to be orthodox in how you behave. Right? So we talk about orthodoxy, belief, but it moves to orthopraxy. So we need to move from belief to behavior. And that's what's going to happen beginning in chapter 4. And I look forward to that. I think in between right thinking and belief and right living, we ought to put prayer. 
Amen? Is that not what Paul does for us? In between those two incredible realities, all that Christ is and all he has done for you, then we're going to move over to all these applications of how to live it out, right? Rich teaching. Some of the most, some of the richest terminology anywhere in the Bible about, for instance, husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. You ready for that, guys? Wear your helmets on those days. And wives submitting unto your husbands as to the Lord. We're going to be real nice to our ladies because we have to, right? But the fact is, we learn all this application, but where does it come from? It comes from right thinking. It comes from right belief. Okay, so really, have you ever heard of the model ACTS in, in, in order to pray A-C-T-S? Most of you have adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We pray that way. But this one's different. <clears throat> it begins with submission. It begins with humility. And so you see this prayer really in a broad scope with a preamble, which is an introduction in verse 14. But I'm calling that submission. And then we have petition. And then we have adoration or praise found in chapter 3 beginning in verse 20, which is a doxology. So that's kind of the broad scope objectively in the outline. But I want to bring it over to you applicationally. Okay, And so we're going to look at this prayer in four ways in the next three weeks. Well, in the next two weeks, we'll see the first four things. And then I'll do a concluding sermon on the adoration part beginning in verse 20. But here's the first thing I want you to see. We need to pray with humility. Today, we'll talk about praying with humility coupled together with this prayer that we would be spiritually, we would be empowered with strength by the Holy Spirit of God. And then we'll move to knowing the love of God. And then we'll move over to spiritual maturity. But for today, let's, let's take this apart and think about the text of Scripture. Pray with humility. Now, how does Paul begin? For this reason. Do y'all know where this started? Remember, we're on a divine rabbit trail. We're chasing this rabbit trail, but it's an inspired one. And look back at verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason. But then, beginning in verse 2, Paul is going to get on a divine rabbit trail. And he won't return to for this reason until which verse? Verse 14 today. He picks up the same understanding for this reason. What is the reason? What compels Paul to go before the Father and pray? Well, it's the great truths, I would say, that are found in chapter 1 and 2, but primarily chapter 2. He's unfolding for us the glorious doctrines of grace. And it is the grace of God, ultimately, that is compelling Paul to bow his heart before the Father and pray. He speaks of our deplorable condition, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God. Aren't you thankful for the but God in the statement of Scripture? This is where we were, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But God, in verse 4, who has actually made us alive together with Christ. And then he's going to give you a panoramic understanding of what that looks like. For we are his workmanship. Created by Christ Jesus unto good works, which God set forth, which God predestined.
before time began that you would actually walk in them. So this is what you were outside of Christ. This is what you are because of God's grace. And he then takes this theme of but God. And now he transitions beginning down in verse 11 to but now. Aren't you thankful? But God did something to change you. You were outside of the covenant people of God. You were outside of the promises of God. But now because Christ has given you peace through his blood, you are now in a position where you're not alienated from God. You're not an enemy of God. You are in the household of God. And so the wall of partition has been broken down and Christ Jesus is our peace. And Christ is now taking Jew and Gentile. That means people of every tribe and nation in this world And he's creating a new society. He's creating a temple unto himself. And you are the very household of God. And these truths are to make your heart soar. Right? Correct doctrine. So, a reflection on the glorious grace of God in saving us should lead us to get on our faces before God. When we contemplate this. He called you. He adopted you. He redeemed you. And he forgave you. That's enough For us to get on our faces before God and to pray to Him. So in reality, the exposition of truth should lead us to prayer. It was the exposition of the Word of God given to Him directly from the Holy Spirit of God that led Him to pray. So God has done for us in Christ what God is doing in us today through Christ. And those things led Paul to pray. Not only what he did in the past, that he... That he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But the actual reality of what God is doing in us today through Christ. Transforming us into his image. It led Paul to a position of a reverent and humble prayer. Folks, prayer is the way that we digest, meditate, assimilate, and begin to obey the truth that has been expounded to us in the word of God. If you read it. And you hear it preached and you walk out of here and never return to it. And never pray and let it ruminate in your mind. Then something is amiss. The truth should be something. Do you, is this foreign to you guys? Or do you wake up in the morning with a biblical truth in your mind? And it kind of dominates your thoughts during the day. And you begin, well Lord that's not by accident. And you begin to pray. Well, if you've never memorized a single verse. If you've never meditated on the word of God. Then you're not going to be a praying person. You just won't because it's the word of God that encourages it. So Paul is praying the magnificent truths that he has expounded upon. And he wants those truths to be an experiential reality to the people of God. Now, what is the most common posture of prayer for a Jew or in the early church? What was the most common posture of prayer? Well, it was standing. But Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Before the Father. So, the physical form of kneeling. When he says, I bow my knee, that's the physical form. But I want you to understand that the foremost thought into his mind is not necessarily this. This is the posture, but it's reflecting a spiritual reality of the heart. In other words, the heart is what is getting low. It's it's bowing before the Lord. When he says, I bow my knees, folks, he is reflecting more the attitude of his heart than the actual posture itself. Now, do I believe that Paul was on his knees? Oh, absolutely, he was on his knees. 
but it's the reverence of bowing before the Lord. He's denoting submission. He's showing us devotion before God. So, it, 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 in a sense, speaking of the earnestness, the seriousness of getting on our knees in prayer. Look, if you've walked with God for quite some time, and you would fit that category in this church family, then you know full well that sometimes just sitting or standing doesn't seem to capture the attitude of your heart. Right? So you just got to hit your knees. You got to bow down. It's showing your heart before the Lord. You know that there are times when praying flat on your face fits more the posture of your heart before God. Especially when there's been some suffering or some persecution, some difficulty in life. So the posture reflects what's going on inside of your heart. Now, does this mean that Paul was afraid because he got on his knees? Does it mean that he was uh, unwelcomed and felt like he needed to bow low to have his access? Uh-uh, back up, right? Verse 12, in whom we have bold access with confidence in Christ. He is our confidence. There is no way to have access at all apart from Jesus. So when he's getting on his knees... He's bold. He knows full well. He can have confidence to be heard before God. But the bowing down shows the humility in his heart before the Lord. How is he praying? To the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Folks, that's the only way you can pray. It's the only way you can ever be heard. It's, it's to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So, he is the one who chose us, he's the one who adopted us, and we're in his family. Check out the next phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Wow. Again, we're, we're talking about humility, we're talking about this reverent prayer before the Lord. Now, what do you think that means? In the, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Well, in light of the text of Scripture... Context is king, right? If we look at chapter 1, 2, and 3, what would this be speaking about? Well, it's certainly speaking about the fatherhood of God. Why? Because he's adopted us and brought us into his family. We are the very temple of the Lord. We are the household of the Lord. So I think it's best to translate it like this. From whom the whole family, those redeemed, adopted, and that belong to the family of God. That's who he's talking about. We know he's not talking about lost people because you're not of your father. If you're lost, you're of your father, the devil. Jesus makes this differentiation in the word of God clearly for us in the gospels. So he's talking about the people of God. And it says heaven and earth is named. What does this mean? Well, folks, think about it. If you tallied up all the numbers of the people in this entire world who are actually believers that are worshiping today... And you compared that to the believers already in heaven, it would pale in comparison. You understand that most of us are already in heaven. Most of the household of God, they're already in heaven. We realize this. So, Paul is including the church militant. What does that mean? That's the church on earth, still living out the gospel. And he's also including the church triumphant. Why? Because they've realized, they've seen, their faith has actually become sight. 
They've seen the Lord of glory face to face. So we have two parts of one great family. What does named mean? Well, do we have a stamp on us or a label when we become a Christian? Do you have something on your forehead? C or disciple. D. What? No, that's not what actually happens. To be named has to do with exercising dominion and ownership. Can I give you an example? Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by, uh-oh, there it is. My name will, sounds like the text, right? Humble themselves and pray. Who needs revival? Not the lost world. They have to be born again. Who needs revival? Those who belong to the Lord. And it's ownership. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my faith. We're talking about ownership. So to be named has to do with ownership and dominion. When we come into the family of God, we're actually under the headship of our heavenly father. We are owned by the Father. We're members of His household. And we are thus under our God's authority. So it's kind of like the same idea of being sealed. Right? We don't have a big S on us. We don't necessarily have a, we don't have a stamp. But it says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's very similar to that. It has to do with ownership. So being named is a mark of ownership. There's also one other thing that is vitally important for us to think about with this expression being named. Remember what Paul did to the hostile powers? He said, so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And we noted that God puts us on display as trophies of grace before the demonic realm. And here I think there's a return for us to think about that. Why? Because God is fully capable of fulfilling the request that we bring to him. Why? Because he has given you his name. It speaks of the glory. Uh, it stresses the might of God. It stresses his sovereignty. And he's the one that created the powers in heaven. He's the one that gave them their classification. He's the one that gave them their identity. God is supreme. Lincoln rightly notes that the term evokes some of the Old Testament connotations of naming in terms of exercising dominion over or even bringing in them into existence. Let me show you Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26. If you don't make it there, write it down and go back and look at it. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 26. Listen. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Lord. Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So, Paul bows before the one true God who is omnipotent over all of creation, including the rebellious powers. Our God reigns. There's no force on heaven and earth that can ever sever this line of communication in prayer to our God. Nothing can ever touch that. Why? Because God is supreme. So for Paul, theology stirs passions that go deep. And it leads Paul to a posture of submission and humility before the sovereign king of the world. Paul is thoroughly convinced that although he is 
high and lifted up and, and fully exalted above us. He's also intimately concerned with his people. Isn't that awesome? The transcendent God of this world who created all things cares about you. Cares about his family. The ones who belong to him. So Paul is convinced of this. Paul knows that the Ephesians need something that only God can give. Listen to me, folks, clearly. You need something that only God can give you. We know that's true in salvation. But if you're saved today, there's also something you need that only God can give you. And that's his power to live the Christian life. You can't live it without it. This is going to be what's seen next. But for right now, we have a father who is rich. We have a father who is powerful. And when you come to him, pray with humility. Why? Because of grace. You, you've not had this access. You wouldn't be saved at all were it not for grace. Right? For this reason. This incredible administrative plan of God that he would save sinners like me and you. Therefore, we bow ourselves before him. We need to pray, and we need to pray with humility. Okay? Number two. Pray for spirit-empowered strength. Notice the text. Okay? I put letters in there to help you. It only means that it's at the end of the verse. Okay? 16b. According, 16a, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And a parallel statement. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So now we move to petition, right? Now, let's be honest. What is the main of prayer from our perspective? Well, I know we worship and we adore. But it really is petitionary, isn't it? We go to the Lord, and the main is to make petition, to ask God for something. Notice, he may grant you. F folks, this is something God gives. God is the one granting this. So prayer is certainly in the main, the idea of petition. We can certainly abuse this, can't we? Oh, we see God as a celestial bellhop or a divine vending machine. We just plug in whatever our formula is and we can expect because we ask that God is actually going to give it to us. You know, you can abuse this. As a matter of fact, James 4.2 reminds us that you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Because you spend it on your evil, lustful passions. Ouch. But in this particular text, folks, although we can ask amiss and the wrong way in a petition, needless to say, folks, we don't need to forget that we're petitioning our God, right? We are bringing a petition to him. So why is it so hard and difficult to pray like this? Why, why is it difficult for us to bow our hearts before the Lord and have an attitude that, God, only you have something to give us, and you're the only one that can do it? Why, why is it so hard? Well, I think it demonstrates our need for God when we pray. Are you all listening? It, it, it shows the submissiveness that we must bring before our God. Why? Because we've got a need. We're needy people. Be honest. But in America, we are autonomous, we think. We're self-centered and we're self-sufficient people. And this mentality today is killing churches. We actually think that God needs us. We've flipped it over, have we not? 
A.W. Tozer once said, 20th century Christianity has put God on welfare. It has turned God into a needy, hand-wringing, pacing deity who is constantly looking for someone to offer up a prayer to him. Folks, this is not the picture of God at all, nor is it the picture of prayer. Stay where you are, Acts 17. Listen to this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's the God we're dealing with, right? If anybody's on welfare, it's us. We're the ones who need him, right? So if there's anything that reflects our welfare, it's the act of submitting to God and going to him and asking him for strength. Why? Because we think we're strong in ourselves. But in reality, we're needy folks. And the Bible says the standard by which Paul asked God to answer this is according to his riches and glory. Wow. It's according to his riches in glory. What does that mean? Well, it means that the resources are limited. Because our God is unlimited. It means the resources are unlimited. Why? Because God, his resources are absolutely unlimited. When we speak of glory, we're talking about his essence, his attributes, his perfections. It's the outshining of the Lord God and all that he is. And it also speaks to his fame and his honor. When you speak of glory, that's what we're talking about. So Paul says, I'm going to pray for something and I'm going to ask it according to a standard. And the standard is the riches of the glory of God. You know, it doesn't say out of the riches. Paul makes, he, he uses the correct word every time. He doesn't use the term out of the glory of his riches, the riches of his glory. He uses according to the riches. The standard is not out of, the standard is according to. Why is that important? Well, Mike Scowden could be a very, very wealthy man. And I can be a pauper preacher. Right? Just poor. Poor as Job's turkey. Smile, folks. Laughing. Right? And I can have a need. And Mike can say, I'm going to help this pastor. He needs this, that, and the other. He's living. He doesn't have the means. I'm using me for an example so I don't throw you under the bus. All right? And so Mike says, you know what, preacher? I'm going to give you out of my abundance. He may give me ten bucks. And you look at him and you're like, dude. You, you got so much money and yet 10 bucks. That's out of riches. You understand? But according to sets you up for life. Not just for that moment. And not just something that is limited out of riches. Anybody can give out of and really honestly not give at all. Compared to what you have. But our God, folks, has infinite resources. And he gives to a standard that's not out of it's according to who he is. In other words, God gives with a standard that is compatible with and commensurate to his wealth. Woo! Amen. Our God, who is infinite in glory and wealth, infinite in resources, gives to us at this standard. So at the end of the section, he's going to say this. Are you ready for it? Now unto him who is able to do. Exceedingly. Why can he do that? Because he has wealth. That we could never imagine. No, not necessarily money. He owns that too. Just try him on it. He'll show you. But the fact of the matter is. He has 
immeasurable wealth. And so we get down to verse 20. He's building steam. That our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. Why? Because he is unlimited in his wealth and resources. So Paul is asking God to give us according to a boundless, infinite resource. Father, give them to the standard of your glory. It's another way of thinking about this. So, when he gives in this way, God gets all the glory. Because we're the ones who are needy. Now, listen to the petition once again. To be strengthened with power in the inner, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is he asking for? Anybody need to be strengthened this morning? Right? What, what is he at? Who, is he, who needs this to be strengthened with power? In other words, God is the agent of this strengthening. God the Holy Spirit is the one who strengthens. Who needs to be strengthened with God's might? Who needs God's inexhaustible resources in order to be strengthened Look, check it out, in the inner man. I'm going to tell you who needs that. Those who are discouraged, those who are disheartened, those who are weak, failing, and faint. In other words, folks, let's sum this all up. Who needs it? Mankind needs it because they're weak. Why do you need to be strengthened to begin with? Because you're weak. Let's be honest, we are. Those who realize their fundamental, inherent, essential weakness... And this is why this is so hard to pray this, because we seldom realize this. You may tell you what helps you realize it? Suffering, affliction, and temptation. When those things come upon you, and God knows exactly how, God knows how to put you in the room and turn the thermostat up so where you're heated up a little bit. He knows exactly how to control that, so that you will sense your need for his strength in your life. We seldom realize this unless we're suffering, being afflicted, or going through temptation. But God strengthened those who recognize their weakness. This is what Paul is asking. God, would you strengthen those who recognize it? Look, it is the power through the Holy Spirit. Right? That's what the text says. It's the Holy Spirit of God that is the power, who is the agent of the strength. He's the one who came to you with the enlivening breath of God and made you alive. And he's the very one who also gives you the strength and the power in the inner man to live the Christian life. He's the one who does it. Now, does this prayer apply to us? Does, do we need this? Do you feel your weakness? Do you realize that in and of yourself you're weak? Now, here's what I know. As long as my physical body is feeling strong and my inner man is weak, I'm in trouble. Uh, I'm 51 years old. I fell out of a tree about three, three weeks ago. I don't bounce off the ground like I used to. I bounced with a thud, and Jesse was my witness, and uh, I, I guess I could have died. I had a chainsaw in my hand holding nine yards. But look, I knew full well that my body's wasting away. This thing doesn't respond like it used to. Yeah, I joked with Natalie. I said a lesser man would have died. <laughs> but I lived, you know. But it's because of the Lord's help. But I think the angel of the Lord dropped me about five feet, kind of suspended, and then for the measure, good measure, dropped me the last six feet so I could know full well what it feels like to fall out of a tree. So, but anyway, I bring that up simply to remind you. Li listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians. Just, again, stay where you are and write down the reference. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verse 16. You don't have to turn too far back to your left. Chapter 4, verse 16. Listen to how Paul, same writer, same author. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Can I get a testimony? Right? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Isn't that awesome? For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Awesome text of scripture. I'm trying to get you to understand. You can be physically strong on the outside, but dying on the inside. And and we put more stock on the outward, don't we? But it's the inner man. So this is not, the inner man is not some kind of secret compartment. You know what it is? It's the center of your life. May God strengthen you at the very center of your being. (laughs) I need this, folks. And I'm, I'm the one preaching the sermon, but I can tell you now, you need it too. All right? So my, may he strengthen you in the center of your struggles and your very spiritual existence. What I really am before God, and God knows it, right? That's where you need to be strengthened. That part of you before God. So it is weak and it lacks power. And if I'm going to be spiritually empowered and transformed, then it must be the Holy Spirit of God that gives me this power and strengthens me in my life. How often do we need this? Well, here's how we live, kind of like our finances. Man, we're just bumping along good after we get that first paycheck at the first of the month. Get to the end of the month, finances run out, we're not doing so well. We need to, whew, we need more money, right? Well, we treat the Spirit of God and His power like that so often. As long as I pray for it once a month, I'm good. And then if it kind of dwindles away as the week, month goes on, then I'll just pray for more strength down the line. Folks, If you've got that kind of attitude, then you don't understand how to live for Christ. You don't understand the Christian life. You don't understand your dependency upon the Lord. If we're honest before him, I need him every solitary minute of every day. That's how often we need his strength. So, notice the parallel petition. We're ending the sermon for the day close to it. Stay with me. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, what is he doing there? Some scholars think he's given another petition. I don't think so. I think he's given a, it's almost parallel. It's almost, the idea is almost parallel. I think he's given you an amplification of what it means to be strengthened with the power of God. And that is this, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In other words, it amplifies, further explains the previous statement. The spirit strengthening activity is the same as Christ indwelling you. How does Christ dwell in our hearts? Through his spirit. Where is Jesus Christ today? Where is the God-man? Wait a minute. Bodily, he's seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. We forget that, don't we? You have a surrogate Christ living in you. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Right? It's the third person of the Trinity. Jesus prayed in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father to give you another comforter, advocate, Parakletos, in other words, it means another of the same kind. At times in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. He is a person, the third person of the divine trinity. He is in us and indwells us in this age while Christ is seated in heaven. It's the Holy Spirit of God. He indwells our hearts. So to pray that he would dwell in our hearts seems very strange at first, doesn't it? Praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Why? Young people, look at me. Because when you got saved, what happened? You thought the Lord God already moved in. And now the prayer says, pray that he may dwell. So is is Paul praying for conversion? 
Because to be saved is to have Christ dwell in you through the Holy Spirit. The moment you were saved, Christ took up residence in your life through the Holy Spirit of God. So why is he praying that Christ may dwell in our hearts? Is he asking for conversion? Is he asking for a second work of grace? A second blessing like some denominations believe? No, he is not. He is praying for sanctification. That's what he's praying for. The verb form for dwell signifies a permanent indwelling rather than a temporary abode. In other words, when God comes in, he comes in permanently. He's dwelling there. So it means to live in constant, constantly. In other words, think about this. He's permanently in us, but we want him to be pervasively in us by faith. Are y'all understanding the words? You, he's in you, but he wants to be pervasive over every area of your inner man. Wow. Now, I'm not good at explaining all that, but I know somebody who is. His name is Don Carson. Okay, if you haven't listened during the sermon, you got to listen now. I'm going to give you a pop quiz when we're done. He's extremely helpful. All right, listen close. Let's picture a couple scraping up enough money to make a down payment on their first home. Anybody ever been there? They buy their home. They recognize full well when they purchase it that it needs a little bit of work. Why? They despise the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. Wallpaper is of the devil. I want to remind you of that. I hate the stuff, all right? So there's wallpaper that they want down. There's a mound of trash in the basement. Track with me. I know people are moving. Track with me. The kitchen was designed more for the convenience of a plumber than a cook. The roof leaks in a couple of places. The insulation barely meets construction standards. The electrical box is too small and the lighting is poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded, but still, it's the young couple's first home and they're very grateful. Months slip by and years slip by. The black silver wallpaper, praise the Lord, has been replaced with tasteful pastel paint patterns. The couple has remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. The roof no longer leaks. The furnace has been replaced. It has central heating and air. Better yet, as the family begins to grow, the couple completes the few bedrooms that were down in the basement, and they actually add on a new wing to the, that has a study and a sewing room. The grounds are neatly trimmed, and it boasts a dazzling rock garden. 25 years after the purchase, the husband remarks to his wife, You know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everything we look at today, we see the results of our own labor. This house has been shaped to meet our needs and our tastes, and I feel very, listen to this, I feel very comfortable here. And then Don Carson says, when Christ by his spirit takes up residence within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash. Black silver wallpaper and a leaking roof. Then Christ sets about to turn this residence into a place that's appropriate for him to live in. It's a home in which he's comfortable. A home, we might add, where he can look around and see his own labor. Oof. There will be a lot of cleaning to do and quite a few repairs. There will be some much-needed expansion. Right? 
But his aim is clear. He wants to make up, take up residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. And then he says, make no mistake about it. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in very bad repair. To use a natural analogy today, some 20 years divorced from where he actually said this. When Carson said this, it was probably about 20 years ago. We're all fixer-uppers. Is that not true? We all are. It takes the spirit-empowered strength of God to change every one of us. This happens so that Christ may genuinely take up residency within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. There's that word. It's about Christ dwelling comfortably within us in such a way that he feels at home. Now listen, as Christ moves about in our hearts through his spirit, do we ever say to him, Lord, you can hang out in the den, but don't go to the bedroom. Uh-oh. I'm comfortable with you reigning in a few areas of my life, but don't go down that hallway and don't go into that bedroom. What Paul is praying for is that we would be sanctified in such a way that the Lord God Almighty could enter any area of our inner life and feel comfortable and at home in a place that he's purchased, that he's cleaned, and that he's furnished. So the question today, how comfortable does the Lord Jesus Christ feel through his spirit in your inner man? Wow. How does he feel in each and every bedroom that you've created in your inner life? Paul's prayer is to the weak that they will be strengthened in the inner man. That we be so cleansed, that we will be so sanctified, that the Lord Jesus him Christ, himself, who dwells us in, by his spirit, may be comfortable as he looks around and sees the labors of his own work. That's the goal. So when Paul says hearts, it's the same as the inner man. And when he says faith, it's faith initially, right? God-given gift, where you're birthed into the family of God. And it's faith to continue. Why? Because there's, it, it, it is through faith. Christ enters our life through faith. But as faith grows, so grows our communion with him, which is by faith as well. And so grows his residency among us. And what's the implication? The more the Spirit empowers our lives, the greater our transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Wow. You know what we're going to do this morning? I appreciate David the design. And this, what we're going to do, was absolutely this elder's idea. And that was this. Why don't we pray like this? So we're going to do that. This is the way we're going to end our service. We're going to pray with humility. Right? And we're going to pray for God to strengthen us where we need it most. In the inner man. And I've asked two people to pray this morning. And I've listened to their prayers. And, and, and I would listen to yours if you came on Wednesday night to prayer meeting. <clears throat> I'm not saying you don't pray. But I as a pastor have listened. And it's not rewarding them. It just shows that theologically they sense their need for God. Right? And we just want to pray. So Miss Kathy is going to lead us in our prayer for humility. And David is going to help her out with the microphone. And then you pray. And then Brother Andy's, Dr. Andy Ellett's going to come. And he's going to pray regarding strength in the inner man. And uh, let me pray first as they move. Because at the end, the choir is going to sing. Uh, what's the name of it, David? Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My Vision.
That's going to conclude our service. Be thou my vision. Look, here's the invitation. Pray. Bow your knee before the God of the universe. And pray that God will strengthen us in the inner man and our entire church. Amen? All right, so let's pray. Father, help us, Lord. I believe to the best of my ability, which is not much, that I've done the best I can and could have to expose what's in this text. God, now your spirit has to work in the hearts of people. There are some things we cannot do. We cannot change a person. Only your spirit can do that. Only a spirit-wrought work can change a heart. And Lord God, help us. Help us to look at the word of God, to apply it to life, to pray prayers that are in the word of God, to help us a pattern, help us have a pattern to think correctly in our praying. God, we all need this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Miss Kathy, let's pray together. We're going we're gonna to actually sing a, a, a prayer song, a couple of prayer songs before Kathy and, and Andy pray for us corporately, and, and we'll join with them, our spirits with theirs, in, in this prayer. Let's stand together and make this our prayer song. Lord, I need you. Again, we're just praying to God right here. It's these words to our Lord. If you need to go to the altar, you go. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart, for no one that guides my heart. Tell him now, Lord, I need
Understanding you have blessed your people with every spiritual blessing. You've chosen us, predestined us for adoption, redeemed us through the blood of Jesus, your Son, forgiven our sins, sealed us with the Holy Spirit, by which I may cry out, Father. We bow our hearts because you know each of your children by name. That is both amazing and very humbling. As the psalmist said, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You know when we sit and when we stand. You go before us and follow us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me to fully grasp. Yet, Father, help us grasp it. Enlighten us because it's the highest, most wonderful privilege. And by the Spirit, may our understanding bring about transformed lives. May we live in such a way that brings you, our Father, the kingly head of the family, glory and honor. As we just sang, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not worship any idols. Let us have hearts that seek your face. In Jesus' name. And Father God, it is the manifold wisdom of you to give us an example of these things in Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, and then was glorified himself, and the power of the resurrection to conquer sin and death. Lord, um, yes, we do come in humility, with a bended knee, and humbled hearts, 
Uh, Father, but you take us, you lift our faces, you lift us up, and you say, I'm in you, and greater is me that is in you, that is he that is in the world. Now go forth in confidence and in boldness, and as I indwell you, I want to be in charge of every room and to instill in you and pervasively dwell in you through every mind and thought, heart, hand, foot, mouth. Lord, as you go, um, as we go, may you be empowering us. And it's the power of the resurrection that is in us when we give away clothes, when we preach the word in Guatemala, when we uh, share the gospel at Back to Bethlehem. Lord, it is you in us. And while, yes, we are humbled because it's only through Christ and his grace that we have access, but, Lord, we have access with confidence and boldness to live for you. We pray that we do this in your name, as a, in, in, uh, having your name on a banner above us, in your glory and honor, in your holy and blessed name, Jesus only, amen. Please listen to our choir as we sing, and this will be our ending, and please don't leave until they're finished singing, okay? You may be seated. Just uh, make this your benediction in your heart as we sing and play this together, okay? <laughs> 